So, hello, Ivan. Thank you for joining me on a fairly momentous occasion. I'm glad to have somebody with your uh, expertise available to kind of guide us through a uh, disturbing series of events. Um, and I'm going to give a little introduction myself, uh, but just so people are aware as they're tuning in here, uh, would you mind just briefly introducing yourself? Uh, yes, uh, thank you for my uh, for invitation. My uh, name is Ivan Kachinovsky, and I teach at the School of Political Studies at the University of, of Ottawa, and I specialize in the study of Ukrainian politics, in particular conflicts in Ukraine, and I'm originally from Ukraine as well. Okay. Um, so uh, I just want to give a little, I don't know if I would call it a mea culpa, but I did spend quite a bit of time covering this subject uh, in terms of my journalistic output and my overall commentary, including here on Colin. And um, people who follow me will probably know that I had a rather skeptical, let's say, uh, disposition toward the prospect of an quote-unquote imminent invasion, at least as forecasted by the U.S. Uh, these predictions tended to come in the form of anonymous officials uh, passing along kind of uncorroborated information to chosen journalists. And that whole method of like public promulgation uh, raises red flags for me. I also have been through a lot of Russia-related information dissemination over the past uh, several years that emanates, at least originally, from the U.S. government, and uh, at least in terms of you know, domestic accusations and some foreign ones, m much of it t tends not to be uh, borne out, to put it mildly. So um, that was my kind of predisposition on this issue. Um, I did get some pushback and I tried to consider my thoughts fairly carefully. And um, whenever I discuss this, uh, I'm not going to say all the time, but, but much of the time, I, I did strive to at least add a qualifier that I was allowing for the possibility of an invasion or I wasn't ruling it out or I wasn't saying it was impossible. Um, and I published an, a Substack article uh, just about an hour ago where I go into this in a bit of greater detail, but I do think it's important that, you know, even if technically I wasn't proven, you know, disastrously wrong, where I said that there was zero chance of invasion and now there is, uh, I do think it's important to recognize that, yes, I mean, the thrust of what I was saying on this topic and the, the message that I guess I was delivering, you know, in communication with, uh, you know, Aaron Maté and others uh, over the past several weeks has been one of pretty... Uh, major skepticism and look the um the prognostications from the u.s officials anonymous or, or not have been uh, borne out so uh, i need to recalibrate i i need to account for uh, certain blind spots i might have and i uh, just want to you know give a pledge here for you know maximal transparency and uh, commitment to try to continuously uh, improve. Um, so with that, uh, Ivan, I just wanted to ask you for your, you know, we're going to get a, li a little bit into uh, the history of the conflict uh, just to kind of maybe modify the way 
people frame it in their minds in terms of the origins, you know, between Russia and Ukraine, at least since 2014. Um, but in terms of the most recent events, you know, the invasion launched last night, you know, I read a piece of yours from January and you suggested that some kind of military incursion could be possible, but you said you seem to uh, believe that an operation on this scale would be very unlikely. So uh, I'm just wondering what your kind of immediate reactions are and how it comports with what you had previously assessed of the situation. Ivan, are you there? Uh, Ivan cannot hear you at the moment, which uh, is unfortunate. Um, maybe it's just me. Hopefully not. Um, let's see. Uh, gee, uh, just could hear Ivan uh, a moment ago, and now I can't. Um, so we'll figure out a uh, technical fix there, hopefully. Give me uh, one second. Just going to send him a message. Hmm. Sorry, I know this is not the most exciting content, um, but, you know, sometimes newcomers to call in uh, might have an issue. So, uh, Ivan, uh, well, I mean, Ivan, just uh, weigh in at any time. Um, Yes, I'm, I'm now back. I'm not sure what happened. There was, uh, okay, there you are. Uh, yep. uh, okay, great. Um, did you hear my uh, question to you? No, I did not hear. Uh, something happened and I was uh, in another uh, room. So that's why. Oh, I see. Okay, I'll just, I'll just quickly repeat the question. Um, so basically I was saying that, you know, my assessment of this situation seemed to... Be, I would say a bit flawed um, in that my predisposition was to be pretty highly skeptical of U.S. intelligence agencies' claims about Russian activity. Maybe this was a product of having lived through the whole turmoil of Russiagate domestically in the U.S., um, where there was a constant barrage of unfounded, often anonymously sourced claims about kind of nefarious Russian intent or what the latest kind of collusion scandal development was and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, all, although I always did allow for the possibility that an uh, invasion could occur in my discussions here on Colin and in my writings and tweets and so forth, uh, it's true that the general thrust of what I was saying uh, kind of communicated a fairly sizable dollop of uh, skepticism toward the prospect of the invasion, which has now, in fact, unfolded. Uh, and I uh, read a piece of yours from January, and you seem to suggest that all you thought, although you thought it was possible that a smaller-scale Russian military operation might occur in uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, you, you did not believe at the time that uh, the, a wider-scale invasion that we're seeing now uh, was was really in the cards. So I'm just curious what your uh, immediate reaction to this development was and uh, how it comports or does not comport with what you had previously assessed about the situation. 
uh, yes, I mentioned in my interviews and, and the publications uh, since uh, in various interviews and publications that there was a real possibility of a conflict between Russia and Ukraine becoming an armed conflict to a different extent, and uh, including a um, full-scale war. And I mentioned this specifically in uh, my op-ed published in, uh, on February 16, after the conflict escalated uh, very significantly, and also in interview to a Spanish newspaper also around that uh, time, because this conflict was developing, and uh, my opinion and my um, take on this issue uh, was that um, the worst possible outcome, which would mean a full-scale Russian invasion, invasion was uh, possible, but I do not see, believe that this was most likely outcome, because uh, this is not like a natural disaster. It, possible, it was possible to avoid this uh, very easily, and uh, not to allow this to go to this uh, kind of, uh, to such extent in terms of um, having a war, a full-scale war, and in which Ukraine has uh, very bad chances of, uh, of getting any positive benefit. That's why I believe that either Zelensky or the U.S. administration would try to do something in order to not to allow this to go to such um, kind of um, bad outcome or worst possible outcome, but this actually now happens, and this is, uh, I think this is like, uh, this is uh, was possible uh, kind of outcome for Ukraine, uh, which was uh, possible before, but now it became real. And it, but it was not inevitable. So it was possible easily to avoid. And I researched conflicts in Ukraine uh, since I wrote my dissertation on this topic in the United States in um, about uh, I think more than 20 years ago. That's why it was kind of very. Uh, but outcome that was allowed to happen, it, and, but it was very easy to avoid. And this is what I also wanted to do, uh, specifically writing all this, in all these publications and all these interviews, trying to also suggest some kind of alternative possible solution to this uh, conflict and to prevent this from going to uh, becoming an armed conflict uh, to a different extent, including recognition of uh, independence by Russia, of these separatist republics and uh, this possibility of this conflict escalating to armed conflict because Russia um, supported separatist uh, republics before uh, militarily in 2015, um, in January and February, and also in August 2014. That's why uh, it was possible to avoid, but now I think this happened, so it's now very difficult, you know, to see what um, a solution can be, and there is still light of hope because uh, Zelensky just uh, made a statement, uh, a latest statement, video address, in which he uh, suggested that uh, possibility of actually negotiating with Russia uh, in order to stop this war. He specifically mentioned that he considers uh, it's now possible to negotiate a neutral status for Ukraine which he previously rejected. And he also said that uh, NATO officials and uh, other Western government officials told him that uh, NATO is not going to be possible for Ukraine, which was obvious even before this. And uh, Russia also suggested that uh, they offer 
possibility for uh, Zelensky to negotiate and stop this uh, war from going on. So it's still there is some chance that uh, this uh, war would not uh, kind of go to um, the scale of uh, of disaster that it can be for Ukraine. Yeah. So, so what, what, what was your sort of immediate visceral or emotional reaction when Putin first announced that an invasion will be launched and then almost immediately we saw, you know, very wide scale bombing and uh, different mobilizations throughout seemingly the whole of Ukraine, not just in any way limited to the east Um what did you, what was your just kind of instinctive, at first blush uh, reaction to that, uh, almost on an emotional level? I think uh, this was easy to, to prevent. Basically, this is like a natural disaster happening. Uh, well, not a natural disaster, but some man-made disaster happening, which could have been easily prevented. So like Chernobyl, uh, basically, which uh, kind of was something like this. That's why... Um, there were already signs as the last few days, which I also published on my social media, that uh, Russia, uh, for instance, uh, recognized independence of these republics and, and uh, also um, decided to use military force in, in this region. And they specifically recognized independence of separatist republics within the old borders of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions, which means uh, they supported claims by these separatists. Right. Can I can, uh, can I just uh, interject really quick and, and ask you what do you perceive as the U.S. role in facilitating or not facilitating some kind of diplomatic resolution? So I mean, uh, not just did they facilitate it, which they clearly didn't. I mean, the diplomacy was a failure, but did they actively impede the attainment? of a diplomatic resolution, which as you're suggesting, and which I've seen others suggest, it's not just limited to your view. Um, the, did, they, did the U.S. impede a diplomatic accord that would have been readily available? And if so, why? I mean, how do you sort of characterize the U.S.'s uh, posture over the course of these negotiations that have been underway now for the past several months? Um, I think this is... Uh kind of another issue, and major issue, because the U.S. government has possibility to prevent this conflict from taking place, and not only because of uh, its ability to basically uh, offer kind of a, a formal or informal guarantee that Ukraine would not join NATO, because in any case, this was not a real possibility in the future, so this was easy kind of um, way to avoid this problem. And another way that the U.S. administration could have done this uh, is by using influence over Zelensky and his government and other politicians in Ukraine, including from county opposition, because uh, they have very strong influence over them. And uh, kind of Ukraine can be considered to be a U- U.S. client state. It, it is dependent on the United States, and it is kind of, um, also uh, kind of affected by... Uh, or influenced very strongly by the U.S. officials and by their policies. So this uh, was possible. So let me ask you, I mean, what, is your, what is your impression of the influence or lack thereof that the U.S. did exert on Zelensky over the course of these last several months? Uh, because the dynamic between Zelensky and the U.S. 
struck me as very strange, and I still don't know quite what to make of it. Um, you say that Ukraine is a client state of the U.S., which, you know, I think is a plausible kind of characterization. The U.S. has been subsidizing and, fun, you know, arming uh, and training the Ukrainian military now for uh, years. And the U.S. is probably the most influ- single most influential foreign actor on the kind of internal Ukrainian affairs, uh, uh, potentially. Um, so what influence did the U.S. administration actually exert on Zelensky throughout this process? Because most of the time when you'd hear from Zelensky, he'd be actually be um, pushing back or disputing or rejecting uh, U.S. claims or claims coming out of the U.S. government or certain media outlets that were just transmitting the words of the U.S. government, he would be coming out and rebuking those uh, statements as a cause of panic. And so it seemed like maybe there was something of a fissure between the Zelensky and the U.S., although it, it's hard to be certain. So I, I'm almost at a loss to describe what exim- what influence the U.S. did exert on uh, Zelensky over the course of this uh, drama. Um, so, so what, what is your take on that? Yes, uh, it's. Uh, I can only say uh, based on public information. Uh, so I do not know any um, information which was not at least publicly. And this is a big if because in private, uh, like uh, diplomacy, can be very different from what they say in public. But based on public information, there were a lot of warnings made, made by. Uh, U.S. officials, including uh, Joe Biden and uh, Blinken and other officials, that Russia would launch a war against Ukraine. And this was uh, starting, I think, with uh, in December, and then in January, and then February, until the very last days. And Zelensky and his um, Minister of Defense and head of uh, National Security and Defense Council basically said they uh, did not consider this public statements by U.S. officials as a real, as a real danger. They, to the last day, basically, they said there was no uh, possibility or real possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, and this is also very puzzling because uh, kind of uh, they, uh, oh, they in other issues they often take U.S. Uh, statements and U.S. policies at um, how to say. Of, they follow face value. Yeah, at face value, yes. And in this case, they just rejected them. So I'm not sure why, because uh, you have U.S. government has such influence, and why they did not kind of manage to basically um, kind of tell Zelensky that uh, or to force him basically to negotiate something uh, in face of such a, a real uh, information about. Uh, Russian possible actions. So that's why, uh, and, and for me, this is like a bigger puzzle. I'm not sure why uh, why this happened and why Zelensky behaved in such a way, which now going to be also very, um, would have negative effect against him and his possible even survival politically. And there's also possibility even physically, because he said uh, just right now that he's basically is been been uh, targeted by, by Russia. You know, as I've mentioned before, the reticence on the part of Ukrainian officials, not least the president, Zelensky, um, but far from uh, solely Zelensky, you know, across the kind of kind of governing apparatus, there was pretty something pretty close to uniformity, regardless of their kind of political affiliation. 
in rejecting what they seem to regard as the exaggerated or alarmist claims from the U.S. about the imminence of an invasion. And I'll admit that this posture or uh, this kind of overall attitude that was evinced over and over by Ukrainian government officials, and, and yes, up until the very last moment, up until yesterday afternoon, they, they kind of continued forth with this skepticism. I'll admit that th- that had maybe an outsized influence on my general kind of evaluation of the situation. I, I, sp- I interviewed last week uh, a member of the Ukraine parliament who told me that the far greater threat to the Ukrainian state at that juncture was not any allegedly imminent Russian invasion, which she regarded as a very remote possibility, but the uh, very real circumstance that the U.S. and its sort of proxies in the media were uh, fomenting a panic in Ukraine. That was her kind of capitulation of the situation. Um, And so, yes, that uh, definitely, I would say, maybe uh, caused me to have a blind spot in uh, assessing the gravity of the actual uh, risk of invasion. So I, I'm, I'm up front with that. But you, you say it's a puzzle, and I agree. But I mean, do you have any any theories, any like preliminary uh, guesses as to why Zelensky and other Ukraine officials uh, acted in this way vis-a-vis the U.S., particularly if they, in other circumstances, uh, take U.S. kind of uh, statements at face value? Yes, I think this is a big issue, and uh, my current uh, guess or kind of uh, informed opinion about this, uh, to explain such uh, very puzzling behavior by Zelensky and other government officials in Ukraine is that uh, they lack experience and they lack knowledge of actual politics. That's why they came from a show business, like uh, Zelensky is uh, basically was uh, kind of uh, what similar to... Yeah, like comedian, yes. TV, like, comedy, uh, TV yeah. actor, yeah. Yeah, like uh, like Saturday Night Live, basically, yeah, yeah. very famous one, and doing the sketches about politicians, and and he uh, was very convincing, very popular in UK. I mean, his ascendance, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but his ascendance to the presidency is almost more bizarre when you think about it than Trump. I mean, he actually, he literally played the president on a comedy TV show, <laughs> and uh, then... Uh, his TV production company founded a party named after the TV show, and uh, somehow he was able to marshal that into a successful uh, campaign in in 2019. So it, it's just very strange. But sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And and he also made this television uh, like a series, which would be very popular about him being a president and so on, and very you know um, basically independent uh, president from the in particular from the West. And trying to solve conflict in peacefully in Ukraine, and he, that's why he was elected. And but also this was done with support of oligarch, uh, who was owner of a television channel, which was very popular and which showed this uh, uh, shows with Zelensky. And uh, Zelensky, when he came to government, he relied on his close friends from um, this comedy show. Uh, the head of uh, his presidential administration is basically from from this comedy show. The head of the State Security Service of Ukraine is also from, from the same uh, comedy show. Uh, they, <laughs> I didn't realize uh, that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And he, this was also his childhood childhood friend. So he relied on people who were very loyal to him, who would never say anything against his wishes, basically. 
and uh, kind of and that's why uh, basically I think this was a big problem because he believed uh, kind of what he wanted to believe as a person who lacks knowledge and and not uh, kind of predict what actually would happen and how to avoid such outcomes and uh, what kind of options there are and this is uh, kind of a big issue and now I think he might be having uh, some kind of uh, uh, second opinion or trying to uh, kind of uh, trying to go back and and, and it's already uh, too late but it's still this possibility to have some kind of solution to this issue but uh, this is I think one of the explanations which is I think might be a real one uh, because uh, he, is, he did the same with other issues. He also uh, kind of um, believed uh, about other policies and so on. Uh, for instance, he believed that uh, Ukraine uh, uh, can be uh, part of the West and that actually Western governments would support Ukraine in case of any military conflict with Russia. And he even uh, in his uh, interviews and his um, messages today, he, he said that uh, he asked Western governments to provide uh, a no-fight zone over Ukraine. Right. This is like, and that would be that would be basically the precipice of World War III, or at least the closest to that precipice that we've gotten in a very long time. If NATO were to now impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine at Zelensky's request, which would, you know, by the nature of a no-fly zone, seemingly require uh, active hostilities between U.S. aircraft and NATO aircraft and, uh, and Russian aircraft. I mean, that's, that's a very frightening circumstance. Yes, exactly. This is, that's why this will never happen. This is, and uh, Biden specifically said this opening, NATO said this also opening, that in no case they would um, use military forces. Uh, of their countries in uh, in intervene in uh, case of war between Russia and Ukraine. That's why this is also very strange that Zelensky still made this kind of calls public to Western governments even today when this already happened and there was a warning from Putin specifically to the West not to interfere in this uh, kind of Russian military operation in Ukraine. And um, so for me this is. I think uh, shows very la- bad lack of knowledge and about politics, and international politics, and, and uh, Zelensky often acts for, as a kind of uh, comedian who tries to get um, very easy uh, public approval uh, for his actions. That's why a lot of his statements and policies are kind of based on this image, very, very carefully created public relations image. But he is less actually concerned about what uh, it means for Ukraine and for his own uh, kind of, um, chances to, to stay in power in Ukraine. And, and that's why he behaves in such kind of uh, self-defeating basically way um, by uh, kind of uh, uh, using such options and allowing basically this conflict to go to such a disastrous uh, stage right now, which could have been easily avoided if he just um, kind of said that um, that Ukraine uh, is not going to seek a membership in NATO, and this would be kind of easy to do because there was no chances for Ukraine to become a NATO member in any case, and Zelensky was told this even by Biden and by other Western governments. Even so, this was kind of, not done uh, kind of uh, categorically, uh, but it was uh, still uh, kind of 
uh, easy to see that the West would never interfere in Ukraine, and the, that for the Western governments, basically, Ukraine is only a tool against Russia. That's why they use uh, Ukraine against Russia, and this is like main uh, kind of interest of the West in uh, in uh, in case of Ukraine. Uh, they but they would never defend Ukraine against Russia for obvious reasons because this would lead to a nuclear war. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we'll we'll take uh, questions. Shortly, so feel free to uh, get in the queue uh, if you're interested. But I'm just going to go with uh, two more questions for you, uh, Ivan. First, um, you know, we're, we'll get to the kind of historical backdrop of this uh, that you've you've studied extensively. But 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 quickly before that, um, you know, what is your interpretation now of Putin and and or the Kremlin's kind of overall aggressive? kind of uh, dis- disposition here. I mean, they, they seem to have taken a lot of observers who are even very critical of Putin or uh, very kind of uh, disinclined to take a, a kind of drastic interpretation of their ambitions. Uh, even those observers uh, in and outside of Russia have been, have been uh, taken off guard by the by the expansiveness of this invasion. So uh, what, is your, what is your interpretation of the Russian uh, intention here and how does it kind of compare with what you had assumed would be possible? Uh, I think there's also still a subject kind of uh, uh, a light, uh, light of hope uh, because the uh, current uh, Russian invasion is not yet uh, at the full scale that it can happen, uh, in particular Western Ukraine. And a very large part of central Ukraine, with the exception of Kiev region and, and nearby uh, locations, are, are not affected to a significant extent by, uh, by the Russian invasion, and uh, which concentrated in eastern part and in the southern part and in the uh, area uh, in northern part uh, from Belarus and, and close to Kiev city, which is capital of Ukraine. And there were all, only some uh, missile strikes in western Ukraine, in particular in city of Lutsk, which is close to Polish border, and this is my original, um, this is my native city. That's why I think uh, for Putin, basically, uh, the main goal is to force uh, Ukraine to adopt the policies which he demanded uh, in his uh, ultimate, ultimatum issued to Western countries, that Ukraine would be never a member of NATO, would be become a neutral country, and would not... Uh, Kind of uh, be a place for uh, location of Western uh, military assets and, and instructors and so on and bases, uh, and uh, that um, also Ukraine would uh, have to change its policies towards um, kind of more policies would, which would accommodate uh, Russia, Russian interests in particular concerning Donbas, uh, maybe recognition of Crimea, and making Ukraine federal state. And uh, I think that uh, Russia is not uh, interested or would not uh, try to occupy Ukraine, entire Ukraine, for a long time. But they want to change government. So basically, do regime change. And this also goes back to reasons why uh, they consider Ukraine such an important issue. is because of, um, of how this conflict started. And uh, this is also one of the reasons for explanation for a very strong reaction by Putin. Um, which is uh, often is entirely omitted by uh, by the Western media and Western politicians when it 
he talks about origin of this conflict and nature of this conflict, even so he mentioned um, as one of justifications of genocide of Russian or Russian speakers in Ukraine. This is not actually uh, supported by any research or by any ev evidence, but in case of um, events in 2014, uh, which led to violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, which was relatively Russian, so this was one of uh, kind of uh, issues which actually, uh, based on my own research, uh, actually um, is uh, is uh, actually is not just uh, how to say fake news or uh, propaganda by Russia. There is uh, evidence to support how this country started, and I think for this reason, um, kind of uh, Putin uh, behaved in such a way and resorted to such extreme uh, um, or to such um, kind of. Um, widespread use of military force, even so it's not yet uh, kind of at the level that Russia could, de could deploy. And uh, in particular, uh, I think they made a demand for Zelensky, according to some information in Ukraine and also a public statement by Kremlin that they gave Zelensky some time, uh, about, one, uh, about 12 hours to decide uh, if uh, he would accept, accept Russian demands and if not, uh, that Russia would continue uh, with much greater ex escalation of this assault on Ukraine, deploying much larger forces using aviation and, and so on. And in such case, it would be very difficult for Ukrainian forces to, to resist for a very long time. And currently, resistance is also quite limited uh, because Russian forces were able to reach a lot of cities in Ukraine without uh, much, of, 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 much of fighting with Ukrainian forces, with exception of locations um, in the past. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, last question before, last, before we go to uh, some callers, and, and Ivan, you know, f uh, feel free to, I know you have other interviews to do, so feel free to exit uh, whenever you need to. Um, but in terms of the historical sort of provenance, uh, going back to 2014, I mean, you, you wrote an article that I will, I'll link to in the sort of description of this episode, uh, you wrote an article where you posit that the a um, inaccurate public understanding of the sort of uh, most co consequential uh, massacre during the 2014 coup um, has contributed to sort of a distortion of how people perceive the conflict now, and you're you're. You're, uh, what you suggest is that there's overwhelming evidence from a variety of different sources, you know, forensic, video, uh, firsthand testimony, et cetera, that uh, this major uh, massacre that occurred uh, during the Maidan protest in 2014 was perpetrated not primarily by the uh, government forces uh, commanded by uh, Yanukovych, uh, the incumbent uh, president at the time who was, who was ousted, um, but it was uh, perpetrated by uh, kind of the more extreme, even fascistic elements uh, who were in, affiliated with the, the Maidan movement um, because, you know, the idea was that in order to actually facilitate the ouster of uh, Yanukovych, they needed to get the casualty count of the, you know, the protesters up to 100. Um, and so... Uh, they, you know, a, a faction that wanted the government overthrown at the time perpetrated this attack on the, the protesters, or, or that, that's the conclusion of your research. Um, so how do you think 
a reevaluation of that history ought to bear on one's assessment of the current situation. Like how, how would it change perceptions of, of the of the conflict today to have that uh, sort of revised historical understanding? I think uh, it was uh, possible actually to prevent this conflict from uh, going to such a very dangerous uh, and uh, kind of scenario which is uh, going on right now and which can still escalate in uh, the next hours or days to much more negative kind of consequences for Ukraine and for other countries by uh, kind of addressing the issue how the conflict happened and uh, just uh, then it will be very easy how it started and then it will be much easier to reach some kind of compromise for different countries uh, uh, or parties of this conflict including uh, the United States, Ukraine, and Russia in particular, uh, because my research shows that um, this uh, conflict originated uh, in uh, about in February of 2014, uh, just slightly more than eight years ago, and when the uh, process of the Maidan opposition, elements of the Maidan opposition, including the right, but also some other elements of opposition, like oligarchic parties in Ukraine from the Maidan, they um, resorted to this mass murder, basically, of their own people, protesters, and police, in order to kind of implicate, uh, in this case, uh, in, in this massacre, uh, the Yanukovych government, which was a relatively pro-Russian government, and to blame him uh, for, and his forces for this massacre and uh, use this to uh, kind of getting power in Ukraine, basically by uh, kind of using this force uh, to change government and to say government. And uh, this um, kind of event was very crucial to what happened afterwards because Russia immediately uh, afterwards, uh, after um, this massacre led to ouster of Yanukovych because uh, the Ukrainian parliament wanted uh, kind of to... You know, First, to withdraw the government forces from uh, downtown Kiev, and uh, when Yanukovych saw that there was no protection for him, and actually there were assassination plots against him, including by the far right, so he left uh, initially to eastern Ukraine, and then he left uh, to uh, he was saved by Russia, and then he was returned to Crimea, and then again uh, he fled to Russia uh, after Russia decided to retaliate and uh, annex Crimea, which was most Russian region in Ukraine and uh, most separatist region in Ukraine and they also started to support uh, first in, in directly and in August uh, 2014 directly by military intervention they started to support separatists in uh, Donbass in eastern Ukraine which was another uh, uh, Russian region in Ukraine and which included a very large number of ethnic Russians so this is um, massacre was very important and um, for the start of the conflict and for its resolution. But uh, now I think this may be kind of also would have effect on this case because uh, kind of um, the view which was presented by the media and by politicians that this was basically like black and white issue in which uh, just uh, Putin does this for no rational reason and, and uh, there was a democracy in Ukraine, a peaceful revolution, uh, which led to overthrow of the government, which must have made on protesters. So this was just presented basically as a, as a good and evil Kind of, which was very easy to decide, and there was no compromise, basically, uh, to, to make any compromise. 
and the same kind of um, policies which are currently by, kind of um, pursued by uh, Zelensky until very last, uh, when he kind of started to send some kind of signals of a possible compromise, that he was very uh, kind of reluctant, very but kind of, um, to to make any statement which would um, be considered to be kind of peaceful or kind of compromise, uh, offer to any compromise because he was talking in this very kind of image of um, kind of revolution of dignity, which um, led to democracy in Ukraine and made Ukraine independent country. And the kind of and this was basically kind of everything that he promoted. That basically why he joined this narrative and was supported by the Western governments and by the Western media. Even so, this kind of narrative is totally false. And there is no evidence beyond any doubt that this massacre was perpetrated by the modern opposition, including far right opposition. In order to place power in Ukraine, this led to the conflict, which is now kind of in a very dangerous uh, stage. Right. Well, I, I think any hope of revising the common understanding of the origins now so that it's not just a black and white or good versus evil dichotomy has been, uh, let's say, heavily complicated by Russia taking the uh, relatively extreme action that it has because it's it's more easy than ever and maybe even more justified than ever for people to just depict this as a black versus white sort of morality tale with obviously Russia as the uh, as the evil aggressor. Um, all right, uh, Ivan, like I said, um, if you need to go at any point, you know, don't don't, don't uh, let me hold you here, but we're going to go now to some questioners. So uh, let's go to Matthew. Matthew, uh, unmute when you're Hey, ready. can you guys hear me? Yes. Hey, so um, first off, Michael, I was going, I was then originally when I first got in the queue, I was going to, purpose of this was to vilify you, but then I read your, your recent <laughs> Substack post and I, I have to say, I respect the, that was a pretty clear admission that this was something you got wrong and that's really all I can expect from journalists given and e-celebrities given the egotism that goes with such roles i, I do commend you for that um do you consider me I'm... an e-celebrity if so that's sort of disturbing <laughs> <laughs> oh come on you are you can make a living off of your personality and your commentary i'd say i'd say that's a title you you have um Jeez. anyway uh... <laughs> i'll put that on my uh, business card yeah maybe <laughs> so um, I mean, I, I, you can you can ask the the second question or like the the, the question that you decided to transition yeah. to as well if you want. But I'm just sort of curious, like what on what grounds? You know, maybe you're like half joking when you say vilify, but like on, on what grounds do you did you initially believe before reading that piece that well, I deserve to be vilified? I don't. I mean, look. I, partly, I have a personal uh, a stake in this, given my my uh, my uh, I'll just say romantic life vaguely. So so I actually am fired up about this beyond political interest virtue signaling like i actually care about this so so um so that's that's the first reason um i don't know if that's very coherent but that's kind of the motive i think you can probably understand that motivations for these things aren't always um perfectly Wait, so like your so like your your romantic partner or something is is in ukraine or from she's ukraine actually or in, she's actually russian uh she's actually russian oh, okay but, um yeah but um russians are affected by this as well given the sanctions regime if they're protesting yeah, yeah. the war, um, that's that's trouble. Um, they could be arrested, beaten up. So, um, it, yeah, I mean, my heart is with with her, and she's very much against against this conflict, as I think most most people in Russia are. But, but I guess in terms of the criticism, and I'll stay in a much more civil way than I than I would have given your your mayor culpa. It was look the the NATO thing 
was one of I think you were focusing on the Russia's the, the narrative that Russia has a national security interest in this because the, the potential expansion of NATO, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you were ignoring other explicit rationales by by Putin and also that are common among Russian nationalists about, frankly, historical revanchism. Like Putin said in his week in his speech the other week, the bullshit like Ukraine used to be a part of Russia and the Bolsheviks. Are terrible for a hundred years ago for having defined as a separate region, and it is still we're still spiritually connected. So there's a revanchism in this, and also just obvious ridiculous propaganda like denazification, the idea that Nazism is endemic to Ukrainian society rather than a problem with some you know militants who come from odd backgrounds. Frankly, so I, I guess I just think you were um, you were focusing on the most rational element of Russia's grievances and ignoring. Um, the kind of obvious nationalistic bloodthirsty parts. That's the criticism I'd make. Okay, I mean, that's a legitimate enough criticism. I'm not sure how it necessarily proves that I'm wrong about anything or that, you know, the invasion now having occurred proves me wrong about my emphasis in terms of whatever grievance might be motivating Putin to behave in the way he is. But, you know, that leaving that aside... You know, I agree, Matthew, that I have tended to focus more on the NATO element or, you know, the because you know why? That's an element over which my government, the government, the country that I live in is governed by elected officials who have chosen willfully to uh, engage in activity that is being cited as the cause of an invasion, including, as Ivan laid out throughout this discussion, uh, cultivating Ukraine as a client state, subsidizing its military, flooding the country with lethal arms across two administrations and uh, in two different parties. And uh, so, yeah, there's a level of culpability there that I have some domain over. Like, I don't have any ability, really, to influence Russian nationalist revanchism. I mean, I don't discount that it's a, it's a contributing factor. I mean, Putin was pretty blatant about that. But he has also stressed the uh, NATO aspect um, and it seems like it is actually pretty high on his sort of pyramid of concerns. Um, so, you know, given that's the only real dimension here that the U.S. government can, can control or at least has some influence over, and given that I'm a citizen of the United States, uh, I think it's rational and reasonable to at least place a greater emphasis on that element. But um, at the same time, I'm not denying that there's some uh, weird sort of ideological kind of historical revisionism uh, going on with Putin. I mean, I, I listened to the speech uh, speeches that he's delivered recently, just as you have. So, so I guess I guess we have a difference on also how ra- I think the NATO thing is the most rational, but I don't think it is particularly rational. And the reason is, if you look at the history of America, you see a a, a pretty you know highly violent, let's say post World War II America, a highly violent country that's very susceptible to military engagements but doesn't uh is not susceptible at all to military engagements with a highly powerful adversary i mean that's never happened since second world war that we fought an enemy that had any chance of defeating us militarily in an outright sense rather than right you know yeah chipping so away at like seem, an occupation force or something right like exactly or yeah. losing the will to fight like it just does not seem plausible to me that the that the West would engage in war with Russia. This doesn't seem supported by evidence. Well, I mean, I don't think it has to necessarily be a plausible 
eventuality that the U.S. would kind of provoke a hot war with Russia for it to at least be in some sense rational for Putin or any other Russian really to not want NATO to enlarge into Ukraine. I mean, it seems like not wanting NATO to enlarge into Ukraine is actually not a viewpoint that's restricted in any way to Putin in Russia. I mean, even the more liberals or reformers uh, are highly averse to NATO expansion into NATO. I, maybe I can, I can correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm, I'm not saying that um, it's the pinnacle of rationality for Putin to prioritize that or that I have some kind of magic formula where I can weigh the relative importance of all these different factors that he cites as, kind of for, uh, as the kind of motivation for his current behavior. Um, but I, I also don't see why it's this kind of uh, sacrosanct principle that the U.S. Uh, is kind of vigorously maintaining that that uh, Ukraine must be allowed to uh, accede into NATO. I mean, it, it's kind of just like a, a nonsense kind of uh, zealotry on the part of U.S. officials that precluded the kind of real diplomacy that maybe could have averted a conflict. And, and again, I, I grant, perhaps it's true, given what's transpired, that Putin was dead set on launching an invasion regardless of any diplomatic concessions that might have been made. But the U.S. didn't even try. Um, and, you know, that, that seems to me... Uh, un, unforgivable, really. But why and, not? And it, it also doesn't mean that I can't reason. condemn Putin's uh, Putin's action, which you know, which right? I do. Which it's an aggressive clearly, war. You clearly have, and you, your your recent article is is quite good on that. But I guess the reason I'm so first of all, I, I think we may just disagree how compelling the rationale is. But but uh, was it the rationale? I'd say first of all, <laughs> the state rationale in the most recent speech actually never he never mentioned NATO in the very most recent speech. He just mentioned. Obviously, propagandistic claims of genocide, denazification. He did like last night. He mentioned it in his speech last night announcing the invasion. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 so, and the fact yeah. that basically the Ukraine's a puppet state of of the U.S. I mean, that's that's what he's claimed. Yeah. yeah. Pretty consistently. This, uh, this is why I think uh, I also mentioned this in my comments when uh, when Putin raised the issue of genocide. Which is, uh, which is not the case, according to my research, which I published about uh, this war in Donbass and about politics in Ukraine. But he, he specifically used this claim in order to repeat the same claim or similar claim which was made by the United States in Kosovo in, in, uh, to justify war with Serbia uh, by NATO in uh, the end of 1990s. And this kind of reference to genocide is uh, basically using precedent which was used by NATO against uh, Kosovo, and uh, now Putin tries to use the same kind of argument, which was fake in both cases, in order to kind of justify uh, use And also, uh, yeah, I don't think this is just a uh, kind of very rational policy for Putin, just uh, because of his historical grievances, which he mentioned in his speech, but I don't think this is like his main motivation, because, uh, for instance, Kazakhstan used to be part of Russia, Russian Federation, um, until uh, I think the 1930s and for a very long time within Russia, Russian Federation, but Putin never kind of um, kind of um, uses a policy of trying to annex Kazakhstan in contrast to what he did in Crimea and uh, what he had now. Professor, you, you know, you know, it would be silly for me to tell you as somebody who who can run rings around me on on this subject that Russia has a much Russian nationals feel a much deeper connection to Ukraine. And Kiev than to Kazakhstan. 
Um, yes, but there are also uh, like Russian. Uh, there, are, uh, there is very large uh, Russian ethnic Russian population in Kazakhstan. Of course, northern Kazakhstan. And the same, the same applies to like Ukraine. So this is uh, kind of. I think this is one of explanations that, in, in addition to very close connection to Ukraine, I think which is similar between Canada and the United States. But the, I think the main reason for Putin actions again, uh, he considered uh, that Ukraine. Uh, with, uh, so there was a regime change in Ukraine in 2014 during the Maidan because he says this uh, Maidan uh, government of Moscow basically was supported by the United States and which then uh, used um, its uh, kind of what he says uh, in administration in Ukraine of politicians who were basically dependent on the US and, and led by the US to pursue policies uh, against Russia. And uh, that he considers this is not acceptable. This is his justification for this, uh, basically, kind of um, fast actions in Crimea and then uh, for what he does right now. So this is, I think, kind of uh, from uh, my point of view, a person who actually follows Paris politics. So this is, uh, this is a rational explanation and kind of um, based on kind of um, view that Putin uh, publicly uh, stated. Uh, and I don't think it's a rational views are kind of uh, which are propagated by the media are kind of are very uh, kind of useful and they are based on uh, just very how to say also kind of ideological perception of, of Russia and conflicts in Ukraine and um, and the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, and I would just add that view, and, and I muted you because I, I was getting some some uh, just scattered noise from your your line there. But I, I would also just add that I personally have kind of pre-existing reservations about the utility of NATO at this juncture, including why it needs to ex- continue expanding, you know, who is the alliance now marshaled against that it needs to expand in this fashion. Um, they claim it's not Russia, but, you know, I don't see a viable alternative kind of proposal for who they're they need to marshal their forces um, to kind of prevent the threat of. Um, and uh, plenty of other criticisms about the composition and just sort of uh, viability of NATO. So for so that kind of combines with a sort of disbelief. I mean, I can believe it, but it, it's, it ought to be considered unbelievable that a prospect that everybody admits is not even going to be conceivably entertained, meaning the admission of Ukraine into NATO, that simply writing that down on a piece of paper and making it into a formal assurance and handing it to Putin, which at least he says, ostensibly, he wants as a guarantee and that would avert war. I mean, I don't know if it's true. Maybe he would have done it anyway. Who's to say? But that's at least what he says. And the U.S. government wouldn't even entertain the possibility. I mean, that to me seems like... Madness? So, I mean, what, they prefer the war that's happening now to not, to, to, to writing something down on a piece of paper and then just abrogate it if you, you know, if you're really that desperate to get Ukraine and NATO in 10, ten years or something. I mean, who knows? The, 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 it should have been an all-hands-on-deck approach to avert war. And, and uh, the, the U.S. diplomacy, I mean, they, they feigned kind of genuine commitment to diplomatic engagement, but I didn't really see much at all in the way of actual substantive exchange between the U.S., and Putin, the, the closest it got was this kind of last-ditch effort by Macron to uh, start a diplomatic back channel, you know, by circumventing the U.S. and kind of trying to come up with his own separate 
maybe arrangement with Putin, and that didn't work either, uh, admittedly. So anyway, I mean, that's, that's my position, and, um, but, but thanks for uh, attempting to uh, vilify me, Matthew. I hope you didn't succeed. Just kidding. And uh, if you want to give a final thought on that, you're, you're up, and then we'll go to the next person. Uh, sure. So I guess – oh, go ahead, Devon, if you want to speak for a sec. No, uh, so just um, I think uh, I had the same issue. My uh, connection was uh, lost, uh, and now I come back. So, okay, I think you were asked this question, so you can. Uh... Yeah. yeah, just give a final thought if you would, Matthew. Thanks. Um, sure. So I guess my view is um, the to attack on the basis of Ukraine's hypothetical membership in NATO is absurd uh, when it isn't even being actively considered. It seems like obviously a sham. Other rationales were given. I may have made a misstatement of fact that this rationale wasn't given in the latest speech, but others were given that are obviously spurious. And to me, it just seems that um, it's it's almost as if it's almost equivalent to saying, oh, why didn't Saddam uh, give the inspectors more time? Why did you just do that instead of focusing on George W. Bush's aggression in Iraq? It seems like Putin's obviously the aggressor here. And frankly, his conduct makes Ukraine's desire to join NATO seem quite rational to me, much more than his view. So that's that's kind of the last bit. Uh, I, I have a quick question. If you want to cut me off, that's cool, uh, Michael, because you, you did say just the last statement. But I have a really quick question that I would hang okay, on. I'll yeah. hang on that. Okay. Um, do you think that there's a problem with some level of tribalism in the kind of anti-war commentators here? And I, I don't need to mention names because you know who I'm talking about. And that, that leads to similar biases, or maybe not as bad, because this is pretty bad, but, but a similar phenomenon that you get in like the pro-war mainstream. Um, I'll, I'll go then and let the next person go, but I'd like to hear your answer. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. No, first, first, quickly on the point of Putin's citation of NATO as a concern being, being spurious, you know, maybe it is, um, but it's not hypothetical. You know, what, one allegation that he leveled is not hypothetical, which is that the U.S., subsidizes and, and arms and trains the Ukrainian military. I mean, he stated that, which is just incontrovertible as a fact, and that's one of his stated grievances. So whether or not um, the, uh, Ukraine officially ascends to NATO, I mean, they, they're conducting interoperability exercises with NATO, and they have some kind of subsidiary status with NATO. I don't remember the exact term off the top of my head right now, but they already have kind of working and escalating affiliations with NATO. So, um, you know, that, 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 that just, that's just factual. Of course, I'm not saying that it justifies an aggressive war, and you're right to say he's the aggressor. I mean, that's just literally factually true. He launched the aggressive war, so he's the aggressor. Um, but, you know, it's, I think it's also worth being kind of clear-eyed about the kind of underpinnings of the, of the rationale here. Um, in terms of uh, kind of a tunnel vision that may be afflicting certain elements of the uh, anti-war commentariat, I mean, I'm assuming I know who you're, <laughs> who you're talking about, roughly speaking. You know, I think there could be some element of that. I mean, I, th- I, I think it, it's just true for sure that a lot of people in that little cohort, myself perhaps included, uh, are chastened by the experience of Russiagate um, over the past five-plus years. I mean, obviously, it's simmered down to to a great extent with Trump out of office, but that really was, you know, a fairly formative uh, experience for me and I think others also in in the cohort that you're alluding to. And uh, a a kind of central component of Russiagate was this never-ending deluge 
of leaks that were dubiously sourced, that were kind of wandered through seemingly respectable media outlets, and that were kind of, that were, had a clear sort of a political purpose behind them, or at least a narrative-shaping purpose that we didn't regard as sufficiently corroborated or established. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to... I've never, you know, since the Mueller report came out, I've never run around kind of touting myself as having been fully vindicated uh, because that's kind of a pompous thing to do. But I think a lot of my analysis, even dating back to very early on, uh, before Russiagate was even quote-unquote a thing... Uh, did probably get borne out uh, by subsequent facts. So maybe um, I made a certain kind of error in pattern recognition. Uh, there was actually a Substack post by a guy whose name was Kaysen, but he was actually Russian and seemed to be some kind of reactionary type, you know, uh, esoteric reactionary, uh, what military expert, something or other. Um, sorry that I'm I'm not remembering the name, but he, he actually, uh, you know, called me out by name in, in the Substack saying that I was engaging in a faulty pattern recognition by kind of trans uh, tr- transplanting the kind of habit that I developed over the course of analyzing Russiagate to this situation. And there probably is something to that. You know, I, I read that criticism even a couple weeks ago, and uh, I kind of incorporated it into my uh, assessment. But I, I guess ultimately, you know, even if... <sighs> Uh, I, I, I maintained a posture of skepticism. Um, I, I, I'm not sure why the onus would necessarily even be on me in the first place to like just engage in this rampant speculation about an invasion potentially being imminent. If an invasion is, is imminent, if an invasion is underway, okay, then produce the evidence and then I'll accept it, which I did when Putin announced the invasion and it was clear for all to see that it was underway. I mean, that seems to be like a, like a reasonable like epi, uh, epistemic approach in that, you know, I'm not speculating. My, my general posture is one of skepticism, um, really having anything to do with U.S. foreign policy at this point, but particularly Russia, given the track record. And, you know, is it possible that maybe I um, overstepped at some point uh, or I should have been more cautious or I should have maybe emphasized more the possibility that an invasion uh, might have happened given the amassment of forces? Possible, yeah. I mean, I, I, I admit that. Um, and uh, I think probably there's a similar dynamic that's pertinent uh, or, 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 or operative uh, with some of these other people that you're alluding to. But, of course, uh, I can't really speak on their behalf. So there you go. All right. Uh, thanks, Matthew. Uh, I'm going to go to the next person. Uh, go ahead. Hey, Michael. Hey, how's like, it going? I have, like, negative 17 minutes but um, okay. <laughs> I'm, late for, I'm late for something but let me be real brief and say yeah, yeah, sure. uh, just to push a little bit back on, on Matthew um, and especially the the Nazi aspect I mean <clears throat> I'm sure you saw Richard Engel's piece for NBC News and MSNBC yeah, yeah, yeah. where with the Azov Battalion where they're wearing SS on their uniforms there's clear aspects of, of Nazi uh, sympathy or actual, not even sympathy, Nazism in in the Ukrainian military, and that's just I, I don't think it's debatable. Second, um, as you and you you said most of it, but I mean George W. Bush uh, uh, tried or or talked about inviting Ukraine in. Um, there was a promise 
that was not written, but that was certainly. Well, no, there, 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 was, there was a statement. In the 90s, there was a statement in the nineties oh, right, uh, right. to uh, to um, to not uh, encroach with NATO any further east, and, and we've done that. And 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 then to add in all the RussiaGate, frankly, BS and and stuff and the sanctions from that which was uh, just something to to um make hillary clinton feel better about herself for losing to donald trump when she lost to donald trump fair and square that's how it goes and 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 to take away her culpability in that this is this has been a push by america to have some sort of confrontation with russia for a very long time and that's just what it is I don't see it any different way, and I'd be curious if you or or Ivan see it differently. But um, I'll leave it at that and listen to you guys as I walk into uh, my appointment. Yeah, you know, I, I, Ivan, um, you have you have a thought on that? Ivan, are you there? Uh, yes. Uh, again, I, I lost connection. Yes, I'm. Oh, okay. Um, you know, basically, basically the, the question was, do we think that the ultimate purpose of a lot of this, at least in terms of the U.S. Uh, policy posture, has been a, um, a longstanding desire to execute some kind of confrontation with Russia? I mean, I, I don't know that most people in the policymaking apparatus in the Biden administration genuinely sought a military confrontation with Russia. I mean, they have to be insane and suicidal to want that, uh, particularly if it's on the scale that could mean, mean nu- nuclear war. Uh, but 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 clearly, Russia, you know, came back in, in came back in style. But but really, Ru- Russia. But clearly, Russia came back in full force as like the chief bogeyman of the uh, American foreign policy establishment within the Democratic Party. In particular, um, I mean, having a unflinching desire to always conf- and everywhere confront Russia, I mean, that's just uh, just a, a foundational sort of facet of their entire platform now. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it serves a useful purpose in that sense. But do they literally want to stoke a direct conflict with Russia? I'm not sure. And if they, if they do want to do that, then they're even crazier than I thought. Um, I don't know, Ivan, if you have a, anything to add to that. I think that this is also a very important issue because um, it uh, looks by some commentators and some politicians in the United States that they want to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Uh, so they basically use uh, Ukraine only as a tool against Russia. They do, are not concerned about democracy, about human rights, about uh, making Ukraine uh, like, um, for instance, like Canada or a bit in Ukraine into European Union. But instead, all the talk was about this um, kind of fictional possibility for NATO membership. And also, I think there's also a very important issue about what happened in 2014 and what kind of U.S. policy was in this case or any kind of involvement because the same situation which uh, which is going on right now with Russia, basically war between uh, Russia and Ukraine could have happened. Uh, there was a very real possibility of this happening in 2014 after the Maidan massacre and after the violent overthrow of the uh, Russian government by Yanukovych and Russia then uh, also uh, used military forces in uh, Crimea. They deployed military forces and in case if there was any resistance to Russia, so this could 
Emir or any other region, this could have also led to uh, kind of much larger war, uh, war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And instead, uh, this uh, led to uh, Russian accession of Crimea and to civil war in Donbass and also Russian interventions in Donbass in uh, support of separatists. So Russia already intervened in, in Donbass to limited scale militarily in 2014 in August and in 2015 in uh, January and February. But um, the question is, uh, if uh, the U.S. government supported uh, this violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, it was very easy to predict that uh, such a kind of war could happen uh, for Ukraine and uh, or in Ukraine, and Russia would get involved. And this is, I think, uh, uh, raises questions if this was deliberate or not, because uh, kind of. Uh, um, based on my research, which I, I mentioned, I published a dissertation, I specialize in this issue, and this was kind of very easy to predict that there would be a response from Russia, because Russia did the same or similar responses uh, in other post-Soviet republics, like in Georgia in 2008, and um, supported separatists in, uh, in Moldova, maybe in Moldova, so, so that's why I think the issue now is, uh, this is kind of, again, a very puzzling issue, why the United States uh, basically did not prevent this conflict, which could have been easily done, and allowed this to kind of develop into basically into by Russia basically to use such option uh, of uh, of uh, relying on a military invasion, and uh, if this was basically uh, kind of uh, even so, the United States government knew about Russian plans to use military force, there was still a possibility to avert this war. And so I think this is a big issue, which, which is also not uh, even asked in the United States by the media and by politicians who just uh, try to kind of use this as uh, kind of as basically as a non-issue and, uh, and talk about all this democracy, about kind of um, the Russian zone. But there are a lot of questions which need to be raised and discussed and uh, and. Uh, such questions need to be asked of U.S. officials and, and also raised in the media, but I don't see this right now. Yep. Uh, okay, thank you for that. Uh, we'll go to Henry next, and then we will uh, wrap up. Henry, go ahead. Hey, uh, Michael, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, sure. So I, I guess where I'm coming from is I, I am very angry and upset about the war. Um, however, I am not so... You know, as far as, far as far as foreign policy goes, I don't know if I've had a clear position. I've listened to Bob Wright for a long time. Um, yeah, I really enjoy that show, and um, I, I'm kind of wondering. Did you read his? Uh, did you read his recent Substack? Actually, um, yeah, I did. I, I okay. did. And I think yeah. that was a couple of days ago, and his uh, interview with the Q was good too. Yeah. Um, Sorry to interrupt. Oh yeah, yeah. So, and I, I guess sort of my my quick opinion is that. You know, I think this is really going to be a disaster for people like Gerhard Schroeder, um, Europeans who have, you know, tried to negotiate and kind of go easy and build ties with Russia. I think this is going to be a political disaster for them. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I mean, I think there's... A well, Schroeder is the one who tried to engineer the, uh, the pipeline, right? Right, right. Yeah. So it's, you know, the, the foreign policy establishment in Europe is, is different than here. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I suspect there will be a change there. Um, and, and so I... I'm, I probably disagree with you, but I didn't come here to, uh, I guess, attack. I guess, I guess what I'm really kind of interested in is, you know, what is what, what do you think are sort of good habits about changing your mind? This is kind of what piggybacking what Matthew said about tribalism. 
But, you know, I, I, I get the sense that you have a pretty negative opinion about the U.S. foreign policy establishment, their, their motives and their competence. And that's probably not going to change today or tomorrow or next week. But could you describe sort of like hypothetically what kind of evidence, what would need for you to happen to have a partial change in, in worldview? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Because, I mean, when I was 15, I thought yeah. Iraq, the Iraq war was going to be. Right. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of change. So, I'm, you know, I'm not here to like, you know, but so, so things change. I was 14 so. and I didn't. So uh, yeah. I, I, I'm one up on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, when I wrote in the subject that I just did earlier t- uh, this evening about, you know, what I got wrong on Ukraine, or the, the invasion, rather, uh, I tried to affirm, you know, that one of the things I can, you know, promise to readers and listeners is that I will try to um, account for any blind spots that may might unwittingly develop. And you say, like, how could the evidence change that would lead my mind to change? Well, I mean, one thing that's definitely changed now is that the uh, you know general thrust of U.S. prognostications, you know, whatever reservations that I have about how they're transmitted through anonymous sources and through like maybe overly um, o- overly aggressive media coverage and whatnot, uh, still you know the basic thrust of what was being predicted uh, has come to fruition. So I mean that's that's a factual reality that I have to accept and, and kind of readjust in accordance with. Um, I, I also grant that on occasion a foreign policy establishment or a foreign policy apparatus that I fundamentally don't support or, or disdain or uh, view, as, view as largely corrupt or ideologically blinkered and, and so on and so forth, um, nonetheless, institutions or even people who you otherwise have that negative attitude toward can still on occasion do something quote-unquote good or some, something that's rational or something that has a positive outcome. Um, so I, I don't. I think it would actually be irrational to say that under no circumstances ever could I foresee the U.S. government doing something in the foreign policy domain that is uh, supportable by me. Um, uh, that that would almost be uh, kind of the self-inflicted imposition of a blind spot. Um, that, that said, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that the U.S. played a particularly helpful role in this in this whole lead-up to war in Ukraine anyway. I mean, I, it's conceivable to me, and again, this is not a defense or apology uh, for Putin by any stretch, but it's conceivable to me that this uh, nonstop, uh, uh, you know, deluge of the most kind of fevered predictions about what Russia was going to be doing militarily in Ukraine, sometimes even getting to the point of, picking specific dates that the invasion would commence, you know, it, it's conceivable to me that this uh, rhetoric emanating out of the U.S., you know, in terms of right out of the mouths of the government officials from Biden on down plus the media, you know, it's conceivable to me that this actually had, and I said this in my Substack earlier tonight, a, uh, a perverse effect on Putin's kind of calculations, where if he quote-unquote backs down at this point, it's going to be claimed as some kind of propaganda triumph for the for the U.S. because they, they, they quote-unquote deterred him or something. So, again, I, I'm not sure that the U.S. did, just because the predictions were borne out, which I acknowledge, which is just factually true, I'm not sure that that necessarily means that they played a constructive role. Um, so I don't know if that, if that gets to your question, um, but, uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be as, as transparent as possible as to my thinking, which I, admit, I, I acknowledge I need to... 
you know, progressively uh, recalibrate now, given events as they've unfolded. Well, I will say that I appreciate that. And you did sort of get to my, my question. What I feel like you just did there is kind of stuck your neck out by saying there's a connection between our rhetoric and how Putin or, or Russia will behave. So the more aggressive or, or denunciating our rhetoric is, the more aggressive they'll become. And that's well, I said it's conceivable. What's that? I said it's conceivable. Well, so I, I guess my, my goal, not just with, I don't mean with you, but just in general with, with commentators, is to try to not, I mean, you can't nail down somebody's ideas to reality completely. But, you know, if it was the case that Biden or, you know, whoever was, you know, consistently denouncing and then Putin actually did back off, it's a blow against that theory. I mean, that's the kind of stuff, stuff, but, but I appreciate you did that because, I mean, to a certain you kind of st- you've put it out there that this is something we should expect to see or that, that it's conceivable. Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to people who I, I regard as reputable, um, who are of the view, and they're not, you know, radicals in the subject or, you know, anti-American or even really leftist zealots or whatever, but, but who do have uh, developed the theory that the, 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 the frenzy of U.S. rhetoric on this over the past several weeks and even months uh, could have had the effect of boxing in Putin so that it would have been politically untenable for Putin to back down or, you know, retreat. Um, I, I don't know if that's true. Uh, it's plausible to me. Um, I guess it's all to say that I'm not somehow compelled, or I don't believe I'm compelled at this point, to say that just because the predictions have been borne out, which, again, I acknowledge is true, um, that necessarily means that the U.S. role here was good or desirable or worthy of support. But, you know, I'm going to examine every subsequent development on its own terms, so maybe there will be something that meets that criteria um, in the near future, and I, I, I leave open that possibility, so... All right. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Henry. And uh, yep. we got one, one more person. Um, Johnny. Johnny GL. Go ahead, Johnny. And then we really will wrap up. Johnny, uh, unmute, please. Oops. Johnny, if you could unmute. All right. Going to go one more time to Johnny. And if he doesn't speak, then we are going to finally... End our little chat here. Uh, okay, Johnny seems unavailable. So with that, uh, Ivan, uh, thank you for uh, for joining me on this discussion. I, I hope people appreciated your in- insights. I, I certainly did. Um, do you have any uh, concluding thoughts? I mean, how, how do you what do you are you willing to make a prediction as to how things will uh, pan out from here, or is it too uh, chaotic or unpredictable of a situation? I mean, I, I'm not inclined to make any predictions myself, but uh, are you? Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for the invitation. And uh, I think uh, again, it's very difficult to predict because wars are not uh, predictable by kind of uh, design. But I think it's uh, kind of possibilities that now there's uh, just basically no good choice left. And yeah, I think it's already too late to basically go back to stability of prevent this conflict. But it's still possible to avoid much more dangerous consequences. So it's still possible. Reach some kind of uh, compromise, which would um, kind of uh, basically uh, lead to end of the war. Uh, 
and uh, not to escalate the conflict. And uh, and I think uh, this also can be um, achieved uh, if uh, there would be you know willingness to do this uh, by Zelensky, by um, Putin, and by uh, the Biden administration. And I think this is a big question if uh, if uh, they would agree on this or not. And if not, I think then options for Ukraine are very look very bleak, and um, I'm quite pessimistic about ability of Ukraine to kind of even maybe survive as a state, or in, I think definitely Ukraine might not be able to survive in its current form. It can lead to either changes of borders of Ukraine, which would be very likely, or even possibility of um, changing uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, annexing some regions by Russia, or uh, kind of making Ukraine to confederation or federation, and uh, uh, and this would lead to conflict, uh, kind of, which would uh, last for a very long time because West would not recognize this, and in this is, uh, in such case it would be again very bad, and uh, this is going to be and uh, have negative consequences not only uh, for Ukraine, which would be the most one who would suffer most, but also for Russia and um, and also for the West and including the United States, which uh, likely would be also affected economically by backfire and by uh, alliance between Russia and China. Yeah. Well, uh, pessimism at this point seems to me like the uh, reasonable default position. Um, but uh, I guess we, if you're a hope, the hoping kind, um, at this point we just have to you know, hope for the best. I know that's not the most optimistic note, um, but yeah, sometimes things are just pessimistic and uh, one must accept that uh, full frontally, I suppose. Uh, all right, everybody. Uh, well, thank you for uh, joining tonight. And uh, I'm assuming there will be more content along these lines in the near future. We'll try to have some more, uh, you know, compelling guests. And uh, we'll do it again soon. So uh, take care. Thank you.